We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 21, and we shall read just now from verse 9, Revelation chapter 21, from verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and in the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And may the Lord bless this short reading again of his holy word. We have been considering in this chapter John's detailed description of the Bride of Christ, the Redeemed Church, described in verse 9 as the Bride, the Lamb's Wife. And as we said, this is the greatest occasion in the history of this world when this great moment comes about that Christ embraces the Bride, that he bought, that he suffered for, that he shed his blood for, that he redeemed. And John is here showing, or the angel is showing John a picture that is so, so different at the end of this book to what he was shown at the beginning. When we where in the second and the third chapters of this book, we have descriptions of the spiritual state and condition of the seven churches in Asia, which, of course, was exemplary in their spiritual conditions of the whole church in reality that existed at the time and indeed since. And you can see the imperfections of the church. They are shown clearly to John. And the Savior desires that the angels of these seven churches would be aware of these blemishes, these shortcomings, these blots on the testimony of the churches. And they were being told they needed to repent. You hear the uh, Lord saying to the angel of the church, 
repent again and again. There were sins in the church that had to be repented of because of all these imperfections. When we come to the end of the book, to these final chapters, John has shown something ever so different. As we said, when he would view these churches at his age as an apostle, the last of the apostles, he might have well wondered, well, what is the future? If this is the condition of the church, what is its future? How will it survive? How will it contend with all the forces of darkness that are already having even now an impact upon it, have actually infiltrated and are already harming and hindering the testimony of the churches. What is the future? What a sight then whenever John writes these words in verse 10 of this chapter, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. He saw a sight that was just such a contrast. Here it is described as being the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. He's seeing now what God has made the church to be. He sees now the perfection of the mighty work of God, that through the centuries, God has not only preserved his church and preserved his people in spite of all the onslaughts against them, but here he is showing John, this is what I intend to do. This is what I am producing. This is the manifestation of my work in the preparation of this people, this body. Going back to the verse 2, John says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, so, so different to what John had ever known of the Jerusalem that he lived in or labored in, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared. That's an amazing statement. It's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, now in a state of readiness to be received by her husband. Now we read from that chapter in Second Peter, and we shall go back to it. We read that because of the connection with what we have here in these final chapters of Revelation. Peter is writing here his second epistle, and in the opening words of this chapter 3, he tells us the reason for writing it. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both. Both my first epistle and the second epistle, the reason is to stir up 
your minds by way of remembrance. What he's saying is this. I don't really have anything new to tell you. I'm not coming to you with any novel ideas of my own, but I'm just reminding you of the fundamental truths that are believed and held among us as believers. And then he says in verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And what is Peter saying? I'm, I'm nothing new to offer you. And you know, no new doctrine, no new commandments or precepts to bring before you. But what I want to do is stir up your minds by way of remembrance. What are you, what do I want you to remember? I want you to be mindful of the words which were spoken before. Who by? By the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. There was obviously, in the understanding of Peter, no contradiction between what the prophets wrote and said and what the apostles preached. There was a continuity uh, between what the apostle or what the prophets said and what the apostles taught. It was all one continuous message. And he said, I want to stir up your minds to think about what the prophets said and what the apostles continued to say or add to it. And then, as he continues through this chapter, without going into the contents of the whole chapter, but concentrating on what relates to the final chapters of Revelation, Peter writes in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. My, if all the politicians and all the environmentalists were all to get the Bible out, maybe they might have more reason to fear what God's intending to do than what uh, we hear them speak of as global warming and, and all its, uh, all its uh, fruits. Peter here tells us what God is going to do with this earth and with the elements of the heavens and so on. Elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. You see what Peter is saying, when we understand the future purpose of God, uh, 
And when we understand the purpose of his maintaining this earth, this world of ours in existence, and you go back to verse 7, the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store. Why are they being still preserved by God? They are reserved unto the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They are preserved and maintained by God until the day of judgment. And then Peter says, now lest men get excited or alarmed as to when this is going to happen, they might look around and they might be seeing in the environment some alarming things developing. Oh, well, maybe the day of judgment is near at hand and so on. What does Peter say? But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So remember that God, who makes these appointments, and who is ordained to fulfill his own will, he doesn't tell you when he's going to do it. For a thousand years are as a day with God. And no doubt Peter knew and those to whom he wrote knew none of us are going to live a thousand years in this world. We're just passing through it. But God's time, you see, is under his own control and a thousand years are as a day. A day with God is as a thousand years. Time doesn't matter as far as God's concerned. But one thing is sure, God is going to keep his promise. That's what Peter says. And if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And if he is going to bring this world to a conclusion on the day of judgment, and the heavens and the earth are going to pass away, that's what's going to happen. Now he says, of course, there'll be those who mock. And they will be saying, nothing has changed. Everything continues as it was. Anybody who believes this nonsense is but a fool. Now, Peter says, there'll be the scoffers. They'll laugh at the idea. They'll mock at the idea. But God is going to keep his promise. Now then, he says, since ye know these things, that these things that are material and that men are so reliant upon and so confident in, they're going to be passing away. How should the knowledge of this affect the way we live, the way we think, our attitude to this world and to the material world in which we live? Peter says, how should the knowledge of what God purposes to do, how should it affect us? And then this is what he writes. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons 
ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of, the, of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. You will see men write books and become wealthy as they describe what's likely to happen at the end of the world. And they will make films that terrify people if that was the way the world was going to end. It'd be shocking, be terrible. I wouldn't want to live when it was happening. Well, if you're Christless and godless and graceless, you'd have every reason to fear. But Peter says the godly don't have anything to fear. They don't need to be alarmed. They look forward to this day, looking and hasting unto the day wherein this is going to happen, verse 13, because although we know this is going to happen, nevertheless we, according to his promise that he's going to keep, We look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him of him in peace without spot and blameless. Was Peter saying? Since you expect God to keep his promise and he's going to do this and he's going to produce the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness because you're looking for that and you're expecting it. Be diligent that ye be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Make sure that your lives testify to that desire for that day and that your lives testify to the fact that you expect to be in that new heaven and that new earth. Now this is what Peter is writing and John is telling us what he saw, he saw what Peter wrote about. He saw the new heavens and the new earth, and he's writing about it, and he is told, as we noted last week, to write, he's addressed from the very throne in the chapter 21. Verse 5, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, new heaven, new earth, And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. It is going to happen. Now it is interesting the warning that Peter gives in connection with these very matters. He tells those who are looking for this great work of God... Verse 15 of Second Peter 3, And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even 
as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. And Peter is saying, what I'm writing to you about, Paul has also written about it. And then John here in Revelation, he writes about it. Because these are the teachings of the apostles that the Savior sent them into the world to teach. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and go and teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And it's very obvious then when you get Peter and you get John and you get Paul and they're all teaching the same things, this was what the Savior sent them in part to teach among the other things. But he says this, Peter says this, as also in all his epistles. Whatever epistle you read from Paul, you will find something about these events, something about this divine purpose of God. But he says... In his other epistles, all his epistles rather, speaking in them of these things, in which, take note, take note, in which are some things hard to understand. Now, It isn't just a general statement that Peter is saying, well, Paul, he wrote all his epistles, and there are some things a bit difficult to understand, a bit difficult to grasp. He's talking about a particular subject and about particular issues regarding the end of time and the end of this world and God producing out of heaven the new heaven, the new earth and the bride of Christ in her glory. And what's Peter saying? Paul has written about these things that I'm writing about. And he says he has written By divine wisdom, he's been given wisdom to write as he does. And you will see in the context that what he writes is considered by Peter to be equally the scriptures with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, with Habakkuk, or any of the other prophets. But he issues a warning. He says, even in his writings about these things, there are some things hard to understand. Now, you young people, particularly, when someone comes along to you and they tell you they've got it all worked out, oh, they know all about the second coming, and they know all about the millennium, 
And they know all about the day of judgment. And they've got it all figured out and they've got it all systematized to perfection. Well, you just tell them you're pleased to meet them. And tell them Peter would be pleased also to meet them to receive light from them. When people come along and tell me that they've got it all worked out and they know to the nth degree everything that God has planned to do to the end of time, well, I don't believe them. Because Peter says that Paul was given wisdom by God to write of these matters. And if you read them, he says, you will not always understand them. There are some things difficult to understand. And that is the reason why I'm not dogmatic on certain particular points. Because this is what Peter writes. And uh, we need to pay heed to it. And we need to pay attention to it. But having said that, John shows us, because it is the purpose of God for us to know it, a thousand years are as a day with God, and a day is as a thousand years, and he's going to keep his promise. He's going to do what he has promised. Whatever way we understand it or feel to understand it, he's going to do what he's purposed to do. And here is John showing what God is going to do. We still await even now for it to take place. We do not know exactly when we're going to see or experience the blessings in their fullness of which John here writes. But he is told from the throne, write them because these words are true and faithful. What is written here is true and it is faithful. This is the picture of the church in its perfection. And Peter says there are a people looking for it and waiting for it. Now that isn't just something confined to the New Testament. Peter was saying what Paul is writing about, we've written about, we've preached about, but the prophets were doing it before us. And that is why we can go back when we're going through the book of the Revelation we can go right back to the Pentateuch, to Moses. We can go to Isaiah. We can go to Jeremiah. We can go to Ezekiel. We can go to Habakkuk. We can go to Zechariah. We can go to Daniel. And you see the connection all the way through. The picture is being clarified more and more as we progress. Now, it is interesting when you go back to the epistle to the Hebrews and the 11th chapter, we have mention of some of the patriarchs. 
and uh, the godly who lived and died by faith. But the father of the household of faith, namely Abraham, is particularly mentioned. And this is what we read of him, Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with them of the same promise. Now, why did he do that? Why did he live that way? Why was that his lifestyle? Well, we're told. For he looked for a city which hath foundations. What was he looking for? A city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, could it be any clearer? If somehow or other John were able to put into the hands of Abraham what he writes here in the closing chapters of Revelation, and he were to say to Abraham, Abraham, you were looking for a city. You dwelt in tents. You were just a sojourner. And we're told that you did this because you were looking for a city that hath foundations. Look at this, Abraham. Here's a city. And as we said last week, it just doesn't have one foundation. It has foundations. It is no less, as we're told here, than uh, 12 foundations Uh, The wall was great and high and had twelve gates and so on. Verse 14, the wall of the city had twelve foundations. What do you think would be the response of Abraham? That's what I've been looking for. That's why I was a pilgrim and a stranger. That's the very city that the eye of faith was looking for. I knew that God would keep his promise. This is the city that hath foundations. And you can see then that a way, way back, down through the generations, one after another, the godly Peter says, We now, all these centuries later, we're still looking for what Abraham was looking for. We're still looking for it. We're still expecting it. The city that hath foundations. Now then, you will see that this city, as we note it, It is the way that John 
describes, because it's what he sees, of the Lamb's wife, the bride of Christ. She's described as a city. And this is nothing new, the way that John writes throughout this book. You have, for example, going back to chapter 5, you have the lion of the tribe of Judah opening the seals of the book. And yet when John looks, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. And this is the way that John uses symbols uh, to convey certain truths. The lion of the tribe of Judah, this is the one that's identified. Yet when John looks, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb. Here, John has said, I'm going to show you now the lamb's wife. And what does John look for and what does he see when he looks? He sees the lamb's wife depicted as a city. Now, while it is a city, it is obvious because this is depicting the lamb's wife, it is not a literal city. It cannot be. It is a symbol of the bride's wife. And what we read of this city, its dimensions, its structure, its gates of entrance, its walls, its foundations, all the way that it's described is to convey to us the glory of the church in her final state, prepared as a bride for her husband. Now, you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in First Corinthians, his first epistle to the Corinthians, the second chapter. Paul writes to the Corinthians, why he patiently labored and ministered among them. He was concerned about the way they were behaving, the slackness among them in many respects. But he tells them this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, As it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And he tells them that he has espoused them to be part of the bride of Christ. When he's writing in his second epistle, he tells them that he has espoused them <clears throat> to be a virgin bride for Christ. These Gentiles, these Corinthians, he tells them that's the reason the gospel has come to you. That's why I preach that I have espoused you to one husband. These were to be part of this glorious bride. But such is to be the glory of this bride 
that Paul has to write, I hath not seen, nor ear heard. Now these Corinthians might say to Paul, well, what about Isaiah? Didn't he write? We heard from him. We heard from Ezekiel. We've heard from the prophets. We've heard from the apostles as well as yourself, Paul. He says, ear has never heard because tongue has never been able to disclose it. Neither hath entered into the heart of man. It's beyond his comprehension. Hath not entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So what we are reading here in the 21st chapter of Revelation, we can read it. It conveys glorious truths to it, and yet it cannot enter into our hearts and reality. It is beyond our comprehension. The glory is so great. The beauty is so amazing that we cannot fully comprehend what God has prepared. What an amazing scene then John has before him. What did Jesus tell his disciples when he was leaving them in John chapter 14? I go to prepare. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will doubtless come again and receive you unto myself. I go to prepare a place for you with myself. What is he really saying to them? I'm going to prepare a place for you as part of the glorious bride of the Lamb that John will write about. And here, when Peter is writing, telling believers that they are to be living in readiness for such a reception to be part of this glorious sight and scene and experience. Then you see the believer begins to understand when Paul was writing <coughs> to the Corinthians, he speaks of our light afflictions. But he says if we look at our light afflictions and the light of eternity, we know that the things which are seen, they're only temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And he said our afflictions are light. They are as nothing as it were in contrast to the exceeding weight of glory. The exceeding weight of glory that awaits the people of God. Reminded, I was reading of a Christian man some years ago, and uh, 
His life seemed to be at one stage just filled with afflictions, one piling on top of the other. No end. And he didn't understand it and he couldn't understand. What is God doing? Why is this happening? And one evening when he was walking home through the city and he was extremely downcast because he couldn't understand what is God doing. And he was passing the great cathedral and there were workmen working at it doing restoration work. And he noted his eye caught one of the men who was a stonemason and he was shaping a beautiful piece of stone and he went over to him and he said, excuse me, he said, but what are you doing? And he says, sir, I'm preparing this to fit up there. I'm preparing this to fit up there. And those words struck that man. And he went away with peace restored to his soul because then he understood. This is fitting me or preparing me to fit in up there. To fit in to the glorious prepared church of Christ. Now, We've already mentioned some of the matters relating to the Bride of Christ, this city, which is, of course, to be considered as a symbol of the true church. Now, we are told that it has 12 foundations and its walls, verse 12, of chapter 21, it had a wall great and high. Now you might wonder why it should have any walls. Because when you go through the Old Testament and you see men building cities, they built walls and sometimes the walls were described to keep the enemy out, to protect the inhabitants of the city from its enemies. Well, there are no enemies here because, as we've already seen, they have been destroyed, they have been judged. But what is the message that is being conveyed here to us? It had a wall great and high. But in the wall, great and high, they had twelve gates. Twelve gates of entrance. And the idea of the wall is so that our attention is drawn to the gates. There is a way of entering this city. There are twelve gates. And the wall is so high you can't climb over it. The only way into this city is through the gates. And there are twelve gates, three in each of the four sides. But you will see that at each gate, 
there is an angel. We're told at the gates, 12 angels. Now we're told that the gates remain open day and night. They're always open so that entrance is available into this city. But there are angels at each of the gates. Now, when we go back to the seven churches, what do we find? An address to the angels of the seven churches. Because they were responsible and held responsible by the head of the church for the conditions that prevailed at the time in the churches. Here are the angels, the messengers of God, the trumpeters of the gospel at the gates, and they undoubtedly are there to welcome men, to direct them and to welcome them to enter into this city. But they are also there to bar the way to any who would intrude into this city because we're told in verse 27, there shall in no wise enter into it, enter into this city anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life, the only people who can enter through these gates to become citizens and inhabitants of this city are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And you go back to chapter 20, the last Two verses, death and hell, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's why we stress the importance of knowing that our names are in this book. Because if they're not in it, we're cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. If our names are in it, we then are welcomed through these gates into the blessedness of this city. We become part of the bride of Christ. Now, how are our names written there? They are only written there because we are the recipients of life that is in Christ Jesus. But, you will see how the gates are described. Verse 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Now you might think that's a strange, unusual way to describe the gates. But remember they who enter into the city through these gates. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now you remember in the Savior's ministry. 
On one occasion, as he's describing the kingdom of heaven, he says, It is likened unto a man who discovers a pearl of great price. And when he discovers that he so values that he'd sell everything he's got in order to purchase it. Now what's the Savior telling us that for? He's stressing the importance of the value of Christ himself. He is nothing less than the pearl of great price. Our great salvation is in him who is the pearl of great price. And what did the pearl of great price tell us? I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. The only way into this city, the only way that we can become members of this glorious bride of Christ is by entrance through him. The wall is high, we cannot climb over it. The entrances are clearly marked out. And they're open, welcoming and inviting. But Jesus Christ is the door into this city, the entrance into the blessedness of which John is writing here. Now, then those who enter, they enter into a city to enjoy its blessedness that is indescribably glorious and uh, John writes of various precious stones that are intended to manifest, to exhibit the glory of the city. Now you know, it's amazing if you walk past some of these jewelers' shops. They're specially lit up. They've got special lighting in them. Now what's the purpose of this special lighting. Because there's jewels in the window being displayed. And the light causes them to sparkle. And then people are attracted to them. And they think, well, that must be very valuable. Look at how it sparkles in the light. Here we're told that this city has no need of either sun or moon. Doesn't need any of the creative light, whatever. But we're told, <coughs> verse 23, this city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And this city is sparkling and the jewels are gleaming because of the light of the Lamb, the light of God that fills the whole city and causes these glorious gems and jewels to sparkle. Now, you go to the book of Malachi 
And there you have dark days depicted. But there were still the remnant of the godly. And Malachi records how that they met often one with another to speak of the things of God. And we're told uh, there in Malachi 3, verse 16, Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them. Now, that'll be a wonderful book when it's opened. Book of remembrance. Be opened. The books were opened. Well, this will be obviously one of them. And it was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. So in the day of judgment, these dear people will be identified. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. My jewels. The jewels that will gleam and heavenly glory as the light of the countenance of the Lamb shines upon his bride. What a glorious sight, incomprehensible, Paul writes. We cannot even begin to comprehend the magnificence of this glorious bride. But she will be garnished with all these gleaming jewels, and uh, that will be because of the grace and the glory of the Lord himself. Now, we are also told that the streets of the, or the street rather of the city, will be of pure gold. Verse 18 the building of the wall of it was of jasper, clear as crystal, we are previously told. But the city was pure gold. Now you've all heard of uh, Fort Knox, the great uh, stronghold in America where it's Gold reserves, 1,050 tons of gold is stored there, worth many, many billions of dollars. It's so secure that you may look at it from a distance, but you cannot make a tour of it, you cannot enter into it. But all that gold has been purified by human means. And the purest gold that man is capable of producing is 99.9 pure. Man has not yet the capacity to produce gold that is 100% pure. Now look at the wealth here. Look at the value of the bride of Christ. Look at the glory that he has procured for her. 
the streets of the city are pure gold. Pure gold. Not prepared by men. But the city descends from God prepared. That is why then it is written, the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. It was so pure. Now you go back to 1 Kings, chapter 6, chapter 8, and so on, where Solomon dedicates his great temple, the, the house of God. He dedicates it to God, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And you read again repeatedly the words that he covered it in gold, or it was overlaid with gold. Uh, when Solomon was providing the evidence not only of his own wealth, but of how uh, this house was to honor God and glorify God, he brought his wealth to the house, but he built it of wood, costly woods, undoubtedly, and yet he could only overlay it with gold. With all his wealth, he couldn't afford that it should be pure gold. You go to chapter 6, for example, of First Kings, and you can see verse 20, he overlaid it with pure gold. Verse 21, he overlaid the house within with pure gold, and then he overlaid it with gold. You see the repetition of verse 32, he overlaid them, <coughs> that is the door's with gold, he spread gold upon the cherubims. Verse 35, he covered them with gold over the fitted work. But here, nothing's overlaid with gold. Everything's pure gold. This is the glory and the value to God of Christ's bride. who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty and high. This is what he endured Calvary for. This is why he suffered. This is why he died. This bride was so precious to him and every child of God who understands how Christ loved the church, why he loved the church. He gave himself for the church. This is the reason for it. She is as good. You remember Job. Job in the midst of his trials in Job 23. He couldn't understand what God was doing, but he said... He knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The life of the believer here is the life of purging 
and trial and tribulation and sanctification in order that the child of God will be prepared to be part of this glorious sight, to be part of this beautiful bride. And Peter says, if we believe that this is what God has promised, It will make us live in this godless world holy and blameless lives. And if you and I have the hope of being part of this great scene depicted, it will be noticeable in our lives from day to day. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy And eternal God, we rejoice in the great scheme of redemption, the great plan and purpose of God from eternity past. And we rejoice in the record that the Son of God, the Christ of God, loved the church and gave himself for it. And oh, we thank thee for the depiction we have of the church that he loved, not only redeemed, but wholly sanctified and presented in all her glory as the wife of the Lamb. May it be our desire to be part of that glorious scene. Oh, may we all be desiring to enter through the gate Christ himself, into this city. Bless us with understanding then of thy truth, and pardon our sins and accept us. For Christ's sake, amen.